Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me this evening and taken the time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor, chapters 56 to 60. In the last chapters, Thermostosceles was banished from Athens before living out the last of his days in Magnesia. In tonight's story, we'll hear of the eloquence of the leader Pericles. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. And now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 56 The Eloquence of Pericles After the death of Aristides, Simon became commander-in-chief of the Allied fleet. Simon was beloved by the Athenians, for he showed them great kindness. Every day he invited some of the poorer citizens to supper. When he walked through the city, he ordered several well-dressed slaves to follow him. Then, if he met a citizen clad in shabby or threadbare garments, he would order one of his slaves to exchange clothes with him. The Allied fleet gained many victories whilst Simon was at the head. In 470 BC, he sailed to an island named Skyrus, in which dwelt a race of pirates who had for many years fallen upon and captured the merchant vessels of Greece. The island of Skyrus lay between Athens and Thrace. The Greek traders were pleased when Simon banished the pirates, as he was soon able to do. A number of Athenians were sent to settle in Skyrus, which from that time belonged to Attica. Now there was a legend which said that in this island there was a grave where lay the bones of Theseus, one of the old heroes of Hellas. It may be that Simon ordered his men to search for the spot where the hero was said to be buried. In any case, 
a grave was found in which lay the body of a giant warrior. No one doubted that this was the body of Theseus, and, as the oracle had commanded, the bones were brought to Athens and placed in a temple which was henceforth called Theseum. The Athenians were loud in the praise of Simon because he had obeyed the commands of the oracle, and he had brought the bones of the hero to Attica. Four years later, Simon gained two great victories over the Persians, by which those Greek cities which had been left under the yoke of the great king were set free. They then hastened to join the Delian League. Simon was now at the height of his power, but his friendship with Sparta, on which the Athenians had always looked with dislike, soon led to his downfall. In 464 BC, there was an earthquake in Peloponnesus. Chasms yawned in the valleys, landslips changed the face of the mountains. The loss of life in Sparta itself was terrible, while both houses and temples were destroyed. The helots, who were always ready to revolt, did so now that their masters were overwhelmed with this great calamity. Simon begged the Athenians to forget their old grudge against the Spartans and to send to her help, remembering only how they had shared in the glory of the Persian War. Do not let Greece be limp of one foot, he urged, and Athens herself be left to draw without her yoke fellow. An Athenian named Pericles, who was now one of the chief citizens, did all he could to make the people refuse to send help to Sparta. But Simon's entreaties were successful. He was himself sent at the head of the Athenian troops to help the Spartans to subdue the helots. The rebels had taken refuge in a fortress, and Simon tried in vain to expel them from the stronghold. Always ready to suspect an Athenian, the Spartans began to think that Simon did not really wish to dislodge the helots. They accused him of treachery and roughly bade him return with his troops to Athens as they no longer wished for his help. During Simon's absence, Pericles and a statesman named Ephelites had made several changes in the ancient court of Athens. These changes did not meet with the approval of Simon and he tried to restore the old customs. The citizens soon grew angry with the two leaders, because each tried to govern Athens in a different way, and, instead of peace, discord ruled in the city. They determined that one of them should be ostracised. In 461 BC, it was resolved to put the matter to the vote. The citizens assembled in the marketplace, and shells were given to them on which to write the name of the leader they wished to banish. When the names were counted, it was found that Simon was ostracized. Soon after Simon left Athens, Aphelates was slain in his own house, and it was believed that this cruel deed had been done by the order of some of Simon's friends 
in revenge for the ostracism of their chief. Pericles was now left alone to govern Athens. He was not rich, so he could not himself do all that Simon had done for the people. But he used the public money for the good of the citizens. And he pleased them by taking from the court of Areopagus most of its ancient power and giving it to the popular assembly. Tickets, too, were given by his order to the poorer folk in Athens, so that they might be able to go to the theatres and other places of public amusement. By these and other acts, Pericles soon won the goodwill of the people. When he was a boy, Pericles had been trained by a philosopher named Anaxagoras, who had taught him much wisdom. When storms arose, they seemed unable to disturb the calm of the philosopher's pupil. One day, as he was busy in the marketplace with affairs of state, a rude fellow never ceased to mock and to speak ill of him. Pericles heard all that the man had said, but he took no notice, and when he had finished his task, he set out for home. The rough fellow followed, throwing at him, not stones, but cruel, wicked words. It was dark when Pericles reached his house. Turning to one of his servants, he bade him take a light and see that the man reached his home in safety. And this he did, although he had been treated so badly. Because he was a great orator, Pericles was named the Olympian, but by some it was said that he was so called because of the beautiful buildings with which he had adorned Athens. At this time, comedies were acted on the stage, and in these comedies, great statesmen were often ridiculed, that is, fun was made both of themselves and of their actions. Those who wrote these plays were allowed to use their wit on anyone or anything that they chose. It was soon seen that the Athenians could laugh heartily at themselves, and that is a good thing that some people can never learn to do. Pericles was too well known to be left alone by the writers of comedy. Sometimes hard words were spoken of him, as when a writer said that he had a dreadful thunderbolt in his tongue. But he who said this knew that the eloquence of Pericles was a great power, and that the orator could make people believe almost anything that he wished them to believe. It is said that one of the kings of Sparta once asked a noble citizen named Thucydides if he or Pericles were the stronger wrestler. When I, answered Thucydides, have thrown him and given him a fair fall, by persisting that he had no fall, he gets the better of me and makes the bystanders, in spite of their own eyes, believe him. Thucydides said this in jest to show what wonders Pericles could work by his eloquence. But although others might make fun of Pericles's great gift of speech, he himself thought of it with reverence. He was very careful what and how he was to speak, insomuch that, whenever he went up to the hustings 
He prayed to the gods that no one word might unawares slip from him, unsuitable for the matter and the occasion. Pericles encouraged the Athenians to war against many of the Greek states, and when they had subdued them, he bade these states to pay tributes to Athens. Year by year, under his guidance, the city grew more and more powerful. In 449 BC, Simon, who had been recalled from exile, sailed with a fleet of 200 ships to Cyprus, where several cities still owned Artaxerxes, the Persian king, as their master. He laid siege to the town of Citium, but before it was taken, he fell ill. Although he was forced to stay in bed, he still sent orders to his men, which helped them to gain two brilliant victories. Simon did not recover from his illness, and after the death of its commander, the fleet returned to Athens. Chapter 57 Pericles and Elpinis Athens was at first the leader of the Delian League. She soon became its ruler. Many of the allied cities offered to send, as their contribution to the League, money instead of ships. To this Athens agreed gladly, and with the money she added ship after ship to her own fleet. So the navy of Athens continued to grow, while that of the other states dwindled until they possessed only a few vessels. The treasury of the League, which had been kept in the small but sacred island of Delos, was moved to Athens with the consent of the Allies. But after a time, the other cities grew discontented. They complained that the money they sent to the League was not spent on ships alone. Some of it, at least, was used to build beautiful temples for the city of Athens. So dissatisfied were they that they declared that they would leave the League, but they soon found that it would be difficult to carry out their threat, for Athens was too anxious to receive their contributions of money to let them go. When the people who lived on the island of Samos revolted, Pericles went with an army to besiege their capital town, and after nine months, the Samians were forced to surrender. The walls of the city were pulled down, the ships belonging to the island were seized, and the inhabitants were forced to pay a heavy fine. On his return to Athens, Pericles was welcomed by his own party, but Elpenice, the sister of Simon, was indignant that the citizens should rejoice at a victory gained over their own countrymen. One day, soon after his triumphant return, Elpenice waylaid Pericles as he was walking along the streets and said to him, These are brave deeds, Pericles, that you have done, and such as deserve our chaplets, who have lost us many a worthy citizen not in a war with Phoenicians or Medes, like my brother Simon, but for the overthrow of an allied and kindred city. 
Elpenis hoped to make Pericles ashamed that he had fought with the people of his own race. And now, for two years, from 447 BC to 445 BC, loss after loss befell Athens. While she was struggling with her own enemies, the king of Sparta marched into Attica with an army. Athens herself was in danger. But before the army reached the city, it was ordered to halt, and soon after it withdrew from Attica. No one knew what had made the Spartans spare Athens, but it was said that Pericles had paid their king a large sum of money on condition that he took his army back to his own country. In 445 BC, Athens signed a thirty years' truce with Sparta, and at the same time, peace was made with Persia. Pericles was now able to devote himself to the work which was his greatest pleasure. He spent fourteen years in making Athens so beautiful that it became the wonder city of the world. Chapter 58 The City of Athens When the Persians entered Athens, they destroyed her temples. Some of these temples had been hastily repaired, others had been hastily built when the Athenians returned to their own city. But now that peace had been made with the Persians, Athens determined to show her gratitude to the gods by building in the city temples exceeding magnifical, more beautiful indeed than any that had been built yet. The most famous of these temples was the Parthenon, or Temple of the Virgin, built on the Acropolis and sacred to the virgin goddess Athene. This marvellous temple was planned by a great architect named Ictinus, and adorned by a yet greater sculptor called Phidias. The architecture of the Parthenon was Doric, which was the oldest, the strongest, as well as the most simple of the four kinds of Grecian buildings. There were two rooms in the Parthenon, with no entrance from one to the other. The figure of the goddess, fashioned by the magic hands of the sculptor Thydeus, was a colossal one. Calm, majestic, with a smile upon her face, she stood in her wondrous temple, clad in a robe of gold. On her head she wore a helmet. In her right hand she held fast a little golden figure of the goddess of victory, while her left lay upon her shield. At her feet a snake lay coiled. Neither of marble nor of bronze was the statue, but of ivory and pure gold, ivory being used for the flesh, gold for the robe and armour, which were studded with precious stones. Nowhere was there so marvellous a statue as this goddess of Athene, wrought by Phidias, save perchance the Zeus at Olympia, which was also moulded by the famous sculptor. The statue of Zeus had a strange power over those who gazed upon it. 
Let a man, sick and weary in his soul, who has passed through many distresses and sorrows, whose pillow is unvisited by kindly sleep, stand in front of this image. He will, I deem, forget all the terrors and troubles of human life. Close to the Parthenon was an older temple, built not in the Doric, but in the Ionic style of architecture. It too was sacred to Athene and also to Poseidon. This temple, which was called the Erechtheum, was held in awe and reverence by the Athenians, for in it was kept an ancient wooden image of the goddess. So ancient was this most holy idol of people, that it looked more like a rough block of wood than a carved figure. The holy olive tree, too, was there, which the Persians had cut down, but which they had been unable to kill, as well as the living snake, the symbol of the presence of the goddess. The Erechtheum was to the Athenians a shrine, in which lay hidden the story of their past. The Parthenon was to them a sign of the power and the splendour of the age of Pericles. On the western side of the Acropolis rose a magnificent marble wall called the Propylaea. The marble had been pierced at intervals to make five great gateways, the central one being for chariots, those on either side leading by steps to the Parthenon. Through these gateways the Athenians marched in solemn procession on their feast days. Sacred to the god Dionysus was finished in the age of Pericles, and an Odeon or great hall of music was added to it, where contests of song and music were held. The roof of the Odeon was pointed like a tent, and was made of the masts of ships that had been captured from the Persians. This pointed roof was said by the wits of Athens to be like the helmet of Pericles, whose head was curiously formed, and who often wore a helmet to conceal its strange shape. Here comes Pericles, says a comic poet of the days, with the Odeon set on his crown. Another great statue of Athene, called Athene Promachos, or Athena foremost in battle, stood just within the Propylaea. It was wrought in bronze and showed Athene in armour, holding shield and spear outstretched. This statue, also by Phidias, was fifty feet high and stood on a pedestal that raised it twenty feet higher, so that it towered above the roofs of the temples. The golden plume on the helmet of the goddess was seen by sailors far out to sea. With these and many other great works of art, Pericles adorned the city of his love. The Acropolis, he said, should be no longer a fortress, but a sanctuary. Some of the Athenians, among them Thucydides, grumbled because Pericles spent the public money on these beautiful things. Pericles heard that the citizens were discontented, 
and in the open assembly, he rose and bade them tell him if they thought he used more money than he ought to adorn the city. Too much a great deal, was the speedy retort. Then, said Pericles, since it is so, let the cost not go to your account, but to mine, and let the inscriptions upon the buildings stand in my name. But the people, surprised at this generosity, and perhaps wishing to share in the glory of his work, were ashamed that they had complained. They bade him spend as much of the public money as he deemed right, and spare no cost until it was all finished. In 479 BC, the Persians had reduced Athens to ruins. Fifty years later, she had been built anew and adorned with temples and statues that made her the wonder of the world. Marble was found in Attica. Gold and ivory were brought with money out of the treasury, but without the magic hand of Phidias, marble, gold and ivory had been brought in vain. Chapter 59 Great Men of Athens Athens, in the age of Pericles, was the home of literary men as well as of sculptors and architects. Aeschylus, one of the greatest men of the age, was a diligent writer of tragedies or serious plays. You will think that he was diligent indeed when I tell you that he wrote ninety plays, although only seven are known to us now. His tragedies were acted in the great theatre of Dionysus, the Per Se, his first play was written eight years after the great sea fight of Salamis to tell of the victory the Athenians had won over the Persians. Just as races were run and music was written by competitors to win renown and gain prizes at the festival of Dionysus, so plays were written and prizes were awarded to the successful author at this great feast. These plays might be about the things that were taking place in Greece at that very time, or the plot might be taken from the old world stories of Troy. Proud and dauntless were the men and women whom Aeschylus made to live upon the stage of Athens. Of many of these you will some day read yourself. Sophocles and Euripides also wrote tragedies, and Euripides is known too for the beauty of his songs. He was a magician who made all that he touched radiant with beauty. Many people loved Euripides because of the wonderful songs and plays which he wrote, but some hated him. Aristophanes, the writer of comedies or amusing plays that made the Athenians laugh with uncontrollable glee, was one of those who disliked Euripides and held up some of his works to scorn. But Socrates, a greater man than he, loved Euripides and called him his favourite poet. Heroditus was the first great Greek historian. He was not born in Attica, 
but he lived some years in Athens. He wrote the story of the Persian Wars, while Thucydides wrote that of the Peloponnesian War. Some of the greatest teachers in Greece at the time were called sophists. A sophist meant, at first, one who was clever in any special art. It did not matter what art it was. It might be cooking, gardening, or teaching. Protagoras was one of the most famous sophists, but the Athenians did not treat him well, for he wrote a book which displeased them, so that they condemned it and accused him of writing against the gods of Greece. So angry were his enemies that Protagoras knew that he could no longer live safely in Athens. He fled from the city and set sail for Sicily, but he was drowned before he reached the island. It was of his dead friend Protagoras that Euripides was thinking when he wrote in one of his plays, Ye have slain, O Greeks, ye have slain the nightingale of the muses, the wizard bird that did no wrong. These are a few of the great men who, with Iptinus, Phadius, and many others of whom I have not told, made the glory of Greece known throughout the wide world. Chapter 60 The Thebans Attack the Platians The cause of the Peloponnesian War was jealousy. Jealousy between Athens and Sparta. Each wished to be the chief state in Greece and the only way to settle the dispute in those days was by an appeal to arms. Athens had a great navy and much wealth. She was at the head of an empire, but the states which she had subdued and which she had forced to pay tribute were discontented and unlikely to prove useful allies. Sparta was the head of the Peloponnesian states. She had a strong army but she had not money with which to carry on war, nor had she, or any of her allies, save Corinth, a fleet that would be of any use against the large, well-equipped fleet of Athens. As long as Athens could keep the mastery of the sea, she would be able to defy the enemy. Famine would soon subdue her if she lost this mastery for much of her corn supply came from abroad, and if the corn ships did not reach the Piraeus with the precious freight, the people would starve. On land, Athens could not hope to hold her own against Sparta. Pericles knew this well, and so he urged the Athenians to place their trust in their ships. Let us give up lands and houses, he said but keep a watch over the city and the sea. We should not, under any irritation at the loss of our property, give battle to the Peloponnesians, who far outnumber us. Mourn not for houses or lands, but for men. Men may give these, but these will not give men. If I thought that you would listen to me, I would say to you, Go yourselves and destroy them, and thereby prove to the Peloponnesians 
that none of these things move you. Such is the power which the Empire of the Sea gives. The Peloponnesian War began in the early spring of 431 BC, when the citizens of the little town of Thebes made a treacherous attack upon the town of Pleiate. Thebes belonged to the Boeotian League, which was on good terms with Sparta, upon bad terms with Athens. Plataea was in alliance with Athens, but there were traitors among the citizens, and these determined to betray their city into the hands of the Thebans. One dark, stormy night, the gates of the city were opened to admit a band of three hundred Thebans. The main body of the Thebans' force was still some distance off. At midnight, the citizens of Plataea were awakened by the sound of trumpets. They dressed in haste, and then rushing to the marketplace, found in the hands of the Thebans, who were calling upon the citizens to forsake Athens and to join the Boeotian League. At first, the Plataeans thought it would be useless to resist the enemy, but before long, they found that there was only a small band of Thebans in the marketplace. Heavy rain had made the river Asupus rise, and the main body of the enemy was still on the farther side of the river, looking in vain for a ford. The Plataeans shut their gates, barricaded their streets with wagons, and then boldly attacked the enemy. The Thebans were soon separated from one another and lost their way in the unknown and dusky streets. To add to their confusion, from windows and roofs, heavy missiles were hurled down upon them by the angry Plataean women. A few scaled the city walls and escaped, but the greater number, rushing through a large door which they mistook for one of the city gates, found themselves in a granary from which there was no escape save the door through which they had entered. It was already held by the Plataeans, and the Thebans were taken prisoners and commanded to lay down their arms. Meanwhile, the main body of the Thebans had reached the city gates to find them guarded by the inhabitants. A herald was sent to bid them withdraw, after releasing the prisoners whom they had taken on their march to the city. Unless this was done without delay, the Plataeans threatened to put to death the Thebans whom they had captured. It was plain that their plot had failed, so, to save their comrades, as they believed, the Thebans released their prisoners, recrossed the Asupus, and went back to their own city. Then the Plataeans did a cruel and treacherous deed, for they slew two hundred of their Theban prisoners. The Plataeans sent to Athens to ask for help when the Theban army appeared without their walls, but the danger was over before help could reach them. Yet, lest the Thebans should return, the women and children were taken to Athens for safety while eighty Athenians were sent to garrison the walls of Plataea.